Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict. Genre fiction is full of larger-than-life protagonists. Superheroes. White-hatted lawmen single-handedly taming the West. Chosen ones destined by prophecy to do battle against the forces of darkness. But what about the rest of us? What about the nobodies, the losers, the has-beens, the ordinary people trying to make their way through the world? Aren't their stories worth telling, too? Joining us by phone is J.R. Dawson, whose short stories have appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Mothership Zeta, and Richard Horton's 2018 Best of the Year anthology. Hi, Jen. Tell us a little more about yourself. Hi. So I mostly write short stories, and I like to focus on sort of ordinary people dealing with ordinary issues that we all are going through, but with an extraordinary background um, and a speculative bend. So uh, one of my friends said that my writing is like Willa Cather in space. And I was like, (laughs) I'll take it. Uh, so, (laughs) So yeah, that's that. Nice. The reason I wanted to invite you onto the podcast is I've noticed that a lot of your fiction is well, as you said, about regular people or humble people or people who are on the periphery of greatness. Like in Marley and Marley, the main character is a time traveler who goes back in time and sort of foster mothers her previous self. And in one part, she meets the person who will later become the president of the United States. But the there's no dramatic meeting between them, like the protagonist doesn't rescue her from a truck or anything. The, the entire conversation is just a customer service transaction. Here's your change. Thanks. Have a nice day. And that's it. Why do you focus on these smaller stories about ordinary people and not, say, the person who saves the future president of the United States from getting hit by a truck or whatever? So I think that there has been a tradition uh, in literature and in life to really focus on these sort of superficial things that define an important person. So, for example, in the Greek times, uh, in order to be a tragic hero, you had to be a king or a god. You couldn't be a woman. You couldn't be a slave. You couldn't be, um, you know, a farmer. So that has definitely transitioned into the modern day and I think that in my own life uh, I I think that especially us as millennials um, (laughs) we felt this pressure growing up well you have to have the biggest house you have to have you know you have to have the fanciest beach side whatever whatever and have three cars and four children and five dogs and and I I think that we've learned through the last 20 years now that sometimes the world's on fire and the most important thing (laughs) is finding love and finding peace uh, within yourself Uh, so in Marley and Marley I was actually really surprised when readers really focused on the president part because for me Hmm. I was just like oh yeah well I mean, we brush we brush elbows with people who are going to be deemed important every day. Um, for example, when I was a kid starting off with acting classes, I went to my uh, theater with Andrew Reynolds, who's now hmm. like this big Broadway star. He was in Girls. He was in the original cast of Book of Mormon. But at the time, like he was just some dude who was in the older kids class. And so for me, like the most important person in Marley and Marley was Jason, uh, who's the, the husband, because he is the person that they're trying to save. Uh, and I thought that it was it was really interesting that Mar- right. the Marleys and Jason kind of sort of 
I don't want to give it away, but they're, they're not being <laughs> looked at as closely as somebody who's in the literal binder of very important people because they're deemed not important, but the entire story is about them because they are very important. They're, they're very real and they have very real scars and very real love. Right. Now, I, uh, we've met before, and in the past, I think you once mentioned that being from the Midwest really influences this aspect of your work. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So growing up, there is this push in Nebraska that if you want to be somebody, you have to go to the coast or further away, (laughs) and that if you stay, then you're going to live an ordinary life, I guess. And I, I really felt that pressure growing up to get out. And when I went to Chicago, a lot of people didn't know where Nebraska was. Uh, How? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, one time I was, I was taking a plane back from Omaha to Chicago and somebody asked me if I was going to be jet lagged and if I was going to make it to class. And I was like, we're in the same time zone. It's an hour. Okay. Um, so uh, coming back and having sort of that mind frame of, you know, Chicago is full of important people and Omaha isn't. And then living here in, in my adult years and realizing like, well, that's a bunch of hooey. Uh, right. I think that that really inspired me to write about where I come from, write about that the flyover area. Yeah. And so I always try to make Nebraska or somewhere near Nebraska sort of the epicenter of what is going on in the story. Another thing really interesting about Omaha is that we are the Forrest Gump of history. Like every time that something interesting has happened, especially in American history, we were like on the on the edges of the photograph. So (laughs) like the Enola Gay was built here. Huh. And Warren Buffett comes from here. Henry Fonda comes from here. Um, Malcolm hmm. X was born here. I'm trying to think what else. There was a um, major metropolitan First Nation city that's only like an hour and a half away from here in Missouri. Uh, hmm. So you have all of these moments in history. Oh, we had a uh, standing bear had its trial here. So all of all of these really small moments or big moments that then Omaha has played a small part in. Abraham Lincoln comes at one point and looks across the river and he's like, oh, what is that? And the people in Council Bluffs are like, oh, that's Omaha. You don't want to go there. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's sort of like that one person was here once. Um, and it was really interesting to grow up as like a history buff, like living in a, in a city that was a part of it, but was like not a part of it. Right. Right. That's neat. One of your stories, The Legendary Legend of the Darkly Slayer, really picks apart the Chosen One narrative that's popular in tons of fantasy novels. Could you talk a little bit about the Chosen One narrative and why you chose to subvert that? (laughs) Yeah, uh, sure. So I was in undergrad when I first read Virginia Woolf's If Shakespeare Had a Sister. It's a portion of uh, a room of one's own. And it was the first time that I ever, that any, I heard anyone challenging the canon. And I realized that maybe the people who come out on top of uh, history and any kind of canon aren't necessarily the people who were the best, but the people who had the most privilege. 
Right. So it's kind of looking back at history, a couple of examples that I wrote down. For example, uh, we we know about Valley Forge and we know that that was a moment in American Revolution, in the American Revolution. And George Washington is known, Aaron Burr is known, obviously Alexander Hamilton is known. But when I started to collect stories um, from more marginalized voices to teach to some of my students, I was told about Polly Cooper, who was an indigenous woman who actually saved everybody at Valley Forge and I had never heard of her before and none of my students had heard of her before wow yeah she fed everyone because they were all starving and if it hadn't been for this woman then nobody would have survived the winter another example uh, really came up in David McCulloch's uh, John Adams we see John Adams and right next to him the arguably smarter Abigail Adams and Abigail wasn't allowed in the Congress because she's a woman Right. So she showed her strength being at home with the kids while they were battling uh, fever and taking care of the farm and keeping everybody together while John was off in Europe forever. And sometimes people would, I know that John definitely wrote her and asked for advice. And oh, so, wow. so really the only reason why she wasn't in the Congress is because she was the woman of the family. And number one, she wouldn't have been allowed. And number two, right. they had a bunch of kids that, you know, was her responsibility just by default. And I know that there's a book coming out. I'm trying to remember who wrote it. Marie Lou has a book coming out about Mozart's sister. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and Mozart's sister was actually, she was brilliant. Yeah. Way more talented than Wolfgang, but, but she was a girl. So, and, and this isn't, I mean, this is just all the way through history of who are we missing out on and whose story did we not hear? Uh, So I think that I just started to question like, okay, so chosen one, are they really the chosen one? (laughs) Are they just the person who had the loudest voice and the most money at the time? Um, So yeah, that's, that's where Annie and, and her buddy came in. That's right. Yeah. That story of Mozart's sister just really makes me mad like we really missed out on another incredibly talented musician a really talented voice um for for our listeners who aren't as familiar with the story uh mozart had a sister who was just as good as he was she was composing and performing with him at a super young age what like four years old or something like ridiculously young like that and instead of growing up to be a musician like he did she just got married and that was it. Yep. Just sort of like, yeah, you don't need to be a brilliant musician anymore. You're married. Just go have kids. Well, can I do both? No. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> you must choose. <laughs> nope. Instead of, so instead of having this amazing team of like brother and sister who were brilliantly talented working together and maybe she could have helped her brother stay sober and <laughs> not die. I don't know. So we could have had even more of both of them. We just lost her. She's stopped oh, yeah. and that really sucks yeah <laughs> yeah and the more you right. look at history the more of of sisters like that you find so yeah yeah it's really frustrating yeah. <laughs> moving on uh there's been a lot of talk about writing strong female characters but at least one of your stories uh when we flew together through the ice focuses on what many people would consider to be a weak female character The protagonist is a total mess who really does not overcome her circumstances at all. What made a character like that so compelling to you? I think that it was honest to the character. 
that story is definitely the darkest thing that I've written. It uh, is. It's, it's so great. dark. <laughs> but yeah, Maribel is definitely very flawed, and and she is a victim in her own way. I I have a lot of feels about the end of that uh, of that story. Yeah, it feels very <laughs> truthful to me, though. Yeah, 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 it's where the characters took the story, and I was like, no, stop. <laughs> But I think that I had to be honest and true to Maribel because um, I think that in order to have actual equality in our writing and in our the stories we tell, like women need to be able to be flawed and they need to be wrong sometimes. It's not interesting for Mar- Maribel to like, you know, get together at the end, like get all of her stuff together at the end and, and sully through if that's not what she's feeling. Right. So I was talking about Greek heroes, the tragic heroes earlier, um, where you have the tragic hero and because of their hubris or their pride um, or their flaw, then they then they fall. And so Arthur Miller argued, well, you don't have to be a king or a god to fall a long ways. You can just be a normal, everyday person. And he brings right. this into Death of a Salesman, which he wrote in mid-20th century. So Willie Loman is actively trying to kill himself in that story. <laughs> and he's... He, succeeds at the end uh spoiler and (laughs) he is kind of a mess up like he's cheating on his wife he's a horrible father to his two kids um and it does have a poignant ending but while he does achieve his goal of you know taking his life like he doesn't achieve his goal of being a good salesman of being a good family member of being a good man and everybody was cool with that but if you look at earlier than that you've got ibsen's doll's house where Nora isn't a perfect person and walks out at the end. Right. And there, that must have shocked people at the time. There was I'm actually sure. a riot. Yeah, there was a, a real riot that happened when Doll's House opened. And, and people were horrified and just, like, very disturbed by the idea that this woman on stage could be making this questionable choice, which... Right. And, you know, it's questionable how we really look at it, but, um, <laughs> but she's, she's not a perfect, you know, strong person. Like she's like, I'm, I've had it. I'm done. I'm out. And she abandons her kids and her, and her family and scoots. But, you know, so it was okay for Willie to be a, a terrible parent and a terrible spouse, right. but for Nora, there was a riot. Yeah. And so I think that when we hit the equilibrium of both of those characters being okay for it to be okay that Maribel does not come out on top smelling like roses then we have hit you know that feminist perspective that we're hoping for absolutely all right now you mentioned a riot uh i'm guessing you haven't had any riots in response to your work but have you gotten any negative reactions based on your decisions to focus on weaker characters or to or to have a downer ending uh yeah well i yes so it's not so much the ending it's it's i've i've been surprised that sometimes people are excuse me they see some of the characters um as not likable not which is weird so marley and marley a couple of people thought that marley the two marleys themselves were not likable and i was like well they're humans yeah and so i think that sometimes women characters femme characters are put under a deeper microscope or maybe even like a more shallow microscope (laughs) because we see that women characters are women and then characters and maybe that's it 
Right. But I, I, I like to think about gender bending a lot. Um, and I've, I uh, actually have played a lot of gender bent characters as an actor. Um, I got to, hmm. I got to play Ben Franklin in an all women's cast of 1776. And oh, that's fun! It was so much fun. But whenever I see a gender bent character, um, I wonder, like, okay, so if this was a, if this was a man. Um, how would this be different than it being a woman? My my friend and I were thinking about doing uh, last five years as a gender bent play, as Jamie being the woman and Kathy being the man, um, and it came off really terribly, actually. So we didn't do it. Um, but <laughs> the last five years, Kathy is. Oh, this is going into a tangent. But <laughs> Kathy has a certain reaction to Jamie that when put to a male counterpart, there's a lot more connotation and a, a lot more mm-hmm. privilege and power that goes with that that makes it terrifying. Whereas, you know, in the original, it isn't that terrifying. So it just, it's it's interesting that when you bring different privileges or oppressions into different characters, like how does that change the framework that we are reading them as or seeing them as? Right. That's something I've wondered about, too. I've definitely gotten that complaint. Oh, I didn't like her much more for female characters, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which I find kind of interesting. I'm like, I don't care. I'm not here to make friends. (laughs) (laughs) Like a reality show contestant. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to win. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Now, I've seen a lot of people, a lot of geek feminists talk about body positivity and media representation, saying they want to see bodies presented on screen that are imperfect, like a little chunky, a little stretch marked. Because media with nothing but perfect bodies in it can kind of hurt us by giving us this impossible standard of beauty that we compare ourselves to. Do you think that there could be a case for showing imperfect personalities in in characters, selfishness, extreme anxiety, cluelessness, flaws that aren't corrected or aren't totally defeated at the end? Can media that only showcases super strong, super noble, morally perfect people be harmful in the way that media that only showcases physically perfect people can be? Um, I think so. I th- that's a hard question. So I think that as writers, as storytellers, we do have a responsibility to the readers um, and to what we are putting out there in the world. Um, so for somebody who like super loves YA, I know that there is a lot of um, argument about like, you know, how moral does YA get? How immoral does yeah. YA get? But I also have like an education background where I always have like my first instinct is like protect the children. Um, not, yeah. you know, don't, don't make like, don't cover them in, you know, styrofoam and, and bubble wrap, but, but also like, what am I, what am I putting out there? What kind of vibes am I putting out there in the world? Um, and how can it be seen incorrectly or used for something that I don't want it to be used for? Mm. So I, that's really hard. So I think that seeing, seeing somebody physically diverse is a little different than seeing somebody morally diverse. Mm. And it really depends on how they're framed. So there's the whole thing about save the cat, which is right. for people who don't know, that means that when you have an unlikable character or a flawed character in the first chapter, you need to have them save a cat um, or do something that makes us really feel for them and actually still care about them. And this is something that I just ran into this summer. I co-authored a manuscript with my friend R.M. Romero, and it is about... Charles Dickens and Hans Christian Andersen the summer that they met up. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a historical fantasy, and I'm super excited about it. <laughs> but I was, she, she took Hans Christian Andersen, and I took Charles Dickens, and then we co-wrote it. And at, the more that I researched Charles Dickens, the more right. I realized how much of an awful human being he was. Right, and he is not the villain of the story. So yeah, Hans Christian Andersen, I understood, was absolutely nuts that whole summer. Like, wasn't the first thing he did come to say to come to announce? You know, in in my culture, it's absolutely customary for the son of the host to kiss yes to the guest on the face. I have to make out with your son now and to shave. Which is yeah, to he pretty rude. It was he was so rude. He was the worst. But he was such a little cinnamon bun, but he was just really like socially awkward. During our research, we found out that when he arrived at Charles Dickens country home, Charles Dickens had moved into the country home three days prior and the pl- wow. the plumbing wasn't even working. Uh, oh. so, so yeah, we had a lot of fun with it. My biggest concern <laughs> with it was that I was going to have to write this man as a likable person and like, what and this man was a real person and I couldn't right. I couldn't condone him like I couldn't PT Barnum him like in the right. greatest showman so we had to do this weird balancing act of okay um we have to stay true to who he is but also we have to make it so people will follow these two through you know 9200 92000 words right so i think that it's a balancing act that we can have flawed morally corrupt characters but how are we going to frame them within that story and how do other people see them in the story and in that world and and i i don't think that they have to come out smelling like roses but i mm. i also don't want anybody like being like that charles dickens he got it figured out i'm gonna go yeah. cheat on my wife like, his attitude toward women was really good oh lord <laughs> it, it was, was very so healthy bad. No. I'm going to go to the morgue and look at a dead person. That was like one of the things he did for funsies, right? Yes, he, yes, he, yep, that is true. Indeed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's healthy and normal. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag role model. <laughs> Hashtag Dickens. <laughs> it was a weird time. It was. <laughs> yeah pretty weird that that was legal so so for the record for for our listeners it uh, charles dickens used to like to go down to the morgue to look at the bodies of dead people that were on display if you committed suicide your body would be put on display as That's some sort right. of weird public exhibition as a sort of punishment but also so that Creepy weirdos could like look at like, ooh, a girl killed herself. They were like, in the Charles windows. Was That's super right. into it. I forgot that. Very normal. Oh, because the CPR <laughs> dummy is one of those girls. Oh, oh my. God. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. Healthy society. Okay, <laughs> cool. So, <laughs> uh, moving on. Who are some of your favorite losers or weak characters in literature? Uh, some of my examples, I I love J. Alfred Prufrock, who is a weak, weak little man from a, an absolutely beautiful poem. I love Ophelia. She's a total mess, but she's sort of the only human and the kind of reminder that in the middle of all this scheming, there's a human being who's just sort of frail and not monstrous enough and she just can't survive she's like the canary in a coal mine um and honestly my favorite character from hunger games is effie yes i find 
so I just find her so compelling in that she's this weak character who has this horrific job where she's supposed to meet a new pair of kids, give them a makeover, and watch them die year after year after year. And she doesn't have the strength, the intelligence, the skills to fix it. All she can do is, like, get them nice outfits and give them snacks. <laughs> and that's it. A nice train ride. <laughs> Yeah, let's go on a nice train ride. Let's get you a makeover, girl. Like, that's all she can do. And I find that so compelling. <laughs> I yeah, I always think about the scene, isn't it, in uh, Mockingjay where they finally see her. Or is it? Yeah, it's Mockingjay where she's down in District 13 and they finally see her and she's, like, stripped of all of her capital gear and she's just kind of sitting there and she's not like a hero and she's not getting ready for battle or anything she's just kind of like well here i am <laughs> <laughs> yeah so who are some of your favorite losers or weak characters in in pop culture or in, or in serious literature either way yeah um so the first character that i ever saw be a turncoat like a super weak loser character turned into a hero was he was so nerdy iago in the aladdin series <laughs> i was a kid and when return of jafar came out which was like this like it was this directed dvd sequel and iago he really sticks his neck out for the good guys and almost dies and then like sort of becomes a good guy for the rest of the the rest of the lore and that was the first time that i saw anything like that happen i was like oh that's my favorite character now which to dethrone the genie was a big deal um mm-hmm. i think that to get more li- literary, Macbeth from the Scottish play definitely hits me, like, in my adult years, just the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow mm. monologue. Even after everything that he's done that is horrifying, like, he's killed children. And, right. And, and he's, like, brought this, <laughs> this castle to ruins. But his wife dies and he goes into that monologue and it just like brings me to tears every time uh and one thing that really changed my perspective of Macbeth as a character I think it was Ian McKellen was gonna play him and Patrick Stewart had played him or one or the other it was the two buddies Hmm. and and one of them asked for help or advice like I'm gonna take on this role like you know, what, what, what do you want me to keep in mind? And the one who had already played him said, in the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, the emphasis is on and, not on tomorrow. And Ooh. I was like, whoa! And, and just the idea of grief and loss and how Macbeth is realizing that this loss hurts right now, but he has lost her forever. And, right. and when you lose somebody who means so much to you, and then you see the expanse of the rest of your life without them, how heartbreaking that is. And I think it's amazing that we have this really horrible man who we really hate by, the, by Act 5, but, but in that scene, we feel so bad for him. And we re- I, I think that I've connected with that monologue more than any other monologue like even mercutio who's like my favorite shakespeare character ever you know uh, this this horrible guy is giving this superhuman monologue about about grief right i also really love edmund and lion the witch in the wardrobe i feel really bad for oh. him because he is a child right and he's hungry he's hungry he's on rations. he just wants some candy he's had no sugar for at least like a year the kid was in the blitz like give him some sugar yeah <laughs> I also really love Zuko. Zuko is 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 my my dude from uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender, mm. and then a character that 
uh, has been kind of a talking point this past year is Tony Stark. Hmm. He is really interesting because <laughs> in Endgame, oh, this is an Endgame spoiler. In Endgame, he, I, I kind of walked out of there like, oh, he redeemed himself until I started talking to my friend Michael Van Kalberg, who's a poet, and I'm going to give him a shout out for this because this is not my original thought. He pointed out that Tony could have done anything with the Infinity Stones in the end, and he decided to commit genocide, which actually was the first choice that he made in the very first Iron Man with those with the Jericho that he was about violence and death and killing at a mass level uh he could have sent Thanos to like Z space the phantom zone or whatever the Marvel equivalent is of that like he could have you know turned everybody good he could have done anything it was a deus ex machina and he decided to to turn them to ash and I was like oh man he didn't learn anything. <laughs> so I thought that that was really interesting from a storytelling perspective. Hmm. Yeah. I see your notes also have Hades from Lore Olympus. Yes. Okay. So I just started reading Lore Olympus, which is a webcomic by, I don't know her name, Rachel. Rachel. And it's on Webtoon. And it is not finished, so I do not know what she is doing with this character. But something that is interesting about this character is that he is flawed. And everybody keeps pointing out that he looks a lot like his dad. Um, and it, it goes into the whole, like, Kronos eating the kids. And it's it's been hinted at that six of the original gods, like, fought back against Kronos and, the, and their legacy now and all this. But everybody keeps pointing out, Hades, you look so much like your dad. Oh, you're such a jerk like your dad. You're going to be a villain. And he's such a nice guy. Like, he's got, like, five, like, rescue dogs. He's trying to, like, keep Persephone safe during her internship. Like... But, like, he also has these really deep flaws. Like, he's he's on again, off again with this really horrible river nymph. And then in this one scene, he takes this, this paparazzi dude who took a picture of him and Persephone and ties him up in a warehouse and then, like, pulls out his eyeball. And while Ooh. he's doing this, the artist, Rachel... Oh, Rachel Smith. All right, Rachel Smith. <laughs> she illustrates him to look exactly like Kronos in those scenes. So his entire color scheme changes and he looks hmm. just like Kronos as he's pulling this guy's eyeball out. But then in the next in the next panel it just goes back to the to the hijinks of the rom-com. And and so I don't huh. know where they're going with this and I think it's really interesting that our leading man is an is an eyeball puller. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, let's see. Oh, I'm trying to think of another one. Twin Peaks, some of my favorite characters are like not the hero detective, but Big Ed. He's this unhappily married man who's, he ended up marrying this woman that he doesn't really love out of pity, but he's sticking with her just again because he feels guilty because he accidentally shot out her eyeball. Think, speaking of eyes, speaking of eyes. It's like uh, the Great Comet uh, musical, Josh Groban's character. Oh, I don't know that one. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, I think. Um, it's based on a, a, like a small chapter of War and Peace. And Josh Groban's character, and his name is Pierre. That's his name, like Natasha Pierre. Hmm. Pierre is staying with his wife because he, he feels pity. He feels no love, but he feels pity. But then he's like, he's holding on to his wife while he's like going and trying to find love in these other places. And, and he's 
just a really weird, like, not not super strong, but also really lovable character. Hmm. And I guess that my, my last example that I wrote down was, because you got to get the Harry Potter in. Harry Potter, uh, <laughs> well, everybody that talks about Snape, Snape is problematic. But Sirius, <laughs> Sirius is also <laughs> very problematic, but... And I don't know if Rowling knows how problematic Sirius is. Um, but you really fall in love with Sirius as a kid. You know, he's everybody's favorite uncle. And then you grow up and you read some of the stuff that he does, primarily with Creature, the house elf. And, and you're like, oh, you're messed up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, those are my examples. Nice. All right. I'm trying to think of good examples of losers, too, people who don't succeed just because I kind of like that. I kind of think that's healthy to see narratives about people who lose. Yes. <laughs> oh gosh. What about Charlize Theron from a uh, young oh, adult? I don't know if you've seen yeah. that one. She's a fucking oh. disaster. I love her so I feel, much. I still feel so bad for Patton Oswalt's <laughs> character in that. Uh. Oh, he's great. Speaking of losers, Patton Oswalt in yes. everything, oh, everything he's ever been in. I love you, Patton. <laughs> Oh, he's amazing. In yeah, he is. He really is. <laughs> Although he does some get something he wanted. He he does get to hook up with the prom queen, he, even though she's completely bananas. She's very <laughs> bananas. <laughs> she's very bananas, and it's glorious, and she learns nothing. Absolutely nothing. At all, <laughs> which is my favorite aspect of the movie. <laughs> she, re- she does not reform herself. She does not overcome her flaws. She just leaves. Yep. She she eats some fried chicken, I think, and then she goes home. Yeah. After trying to destroy her ex-boyfriend's marriage. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of, um, there's a character in uh, Something Rotten, the musical, Nick Bottom. Uh, I don't think he really learns anything either um, at the end of that musical. Just nothing. Oh, and then, of course, the musical's biggest loser is Aaron Burr Ooh. in Hamilton. Have you seen Hamilton yet? Or I have Hamilton? not. Oh, oh, my heart. So Aaron Burr is the villain of Hamilton. He's the one who shoots him in the duel. Historically, right. Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton got in the fight. So you know the whole time because that he's going to do this because in the first song, he says, I'm the damn fool who shot him. Yeah. And so at the end, he's singing this song about how he goes to a bar and gets a drink and they say you gotta run and he runs and he says and now I'm the villain in your story and <laughs> you know I made a mistake and and I mean Burr pretty much died in exile in real life and it, he's not a bad guy in the in the musical he's you know he they frame it as he just didn't want to be shot because he had a daughter to take care of uh, <laughs> and so he shoots Hamilton and Hamilton doesn't shoot him and uh, when I was teaching it to my students last year, there was a question of whether or not Burr or Hamilton were the, uh, which one was the protagonist, which one was the antagonist. Because Burr, honestly, like, is the one who changes and is the one who is, who isn't really instig- instigating any of the conflict. And Hamilton's the one who doesn't really change. He, like, comes on in the first part and he's like, I'm going to be something and then at the end, he's like, I've become something. <laughs> like, Whereas Burr right. is like, I'm going to be something. And then he's like, oh, I, I can't be something. This Hamilton has me beat. Please don't kill me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah. Nice, nice. 
All right. So in short, losers are good. <laughs> Blood characters are good. Chosen ones are terrible. Chosen one narratives where the hero is just destined from birth to, to save the day because he has pure bloodline, um, I think might be a little problematic in, in certain ways, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, generally in real life, I think when someone's talking about how they were destined to rule because of their bloodline <laughs> and the purity of their blood, something really fucked up's about to happen. There's either going to be an incest or a genocide yeah. when someone talks about bloodlines giving you the right to rule. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that, I mean, two stories come to mind is Harry, uh, Harry Potter and, and uh, the Arthur legends. Right. Somebody was pointing out online at some point that in the Arthur Legends, the Lady of the Lake would have probably been a, a Druid smith and not mm. just some woman chilling in a lake. Right. Because of the like the ore and what you make the, the swords out of and stuff. Um, and it's really interesting to see different adaptations of, of Arthur um, and which ones focus on Arthur, uh, which is pretty run-of-the-mill. Like, oh, look, he was destined. He's Uther's skin, and he dies. Or those who are looking at Guinevere um, and why Guinevere is in the position that she's in. Sometimes it's because she's trying to save her country. That's that's the best one that I found, is that she goes and becomes the queen in order to to save her country from ruin and give them support. And, and there is also that, there was that really weird... Uh, show that came out where she was a picked, but I don't know what that's about. Anyway, um, so the the side characters have a lot more life going on for them. And then Harry Potter, I saw a post that somebody said, when you ask somebody who their favorite Harry Potter character is, you never hear Harry Potter. Um, yeah. And it's true. I mean, like a lot of people are super into Neville and, and Draco and even like Hagrid, even the ones that are flawed, like Dumbledore is extremely flawed and he is a more interesting character than Harry and I think it's because Harry doesn't really have a say in anything that is happening to him until the very end when he has been groomed to make that decision hmm. whereas everybody else does have a say in what they're doing like Draco yeah he has a bloodline or he's supposed to be like evil Malfoy or whatever but it is not as deeply entrenched as Dumbledore sitting there telling Harry, oh, yes, you are the chosen one. You have the scar. Right. Like, you're going to have to walk into the woods. And blah, blah, blah. Like right. He could just say, like, fuck you, dad. <laughs> yeah. And he does. I mean, kind of. Or at least his mom does. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, sure. So I've got two new stories coming out at some point, Lightspeed and Daily Science Fiction. So that will be coming out soon. I also have um, an exclusive serial um, that is updated monthly on my Patreon. Nice. It is called The Andrews, and it's about a family that uh, is on a generation ship. So that's patreon.com slash Dawson. Nice, nice. All right. Now that's all for us this episode. If you like what you hear and you want to support us, then head on over to patreon.com slash writegood, that's R-I-T-E-G-U-D, and subscribe. Join us next time when we talk about originality. Is it really necessary? Thanks for listening. This has been Write Good with R.S. Benedict, hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. 
If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs>